Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com What's up, Cannabis Congregation? Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Cannabis Legalization News. On this high holy day, 420 Eve, uh, make sure you tune in for tomorrow's episode of uh, Cannabis Legalization News, where we're going to have a live Q&A with Tom and Miggy. But today we are joined by Mary Lynn Mather from Patients Out of Time. Uh, how's everybody doing today? Happy 420 doing Eve. Great. Happy 420 Eve. Thanks for joining us, Mary. Mary Lynn. Mary Lynn, <laughs> Patients Mary Lynn. Out of Time. I mean, this is it goes all the way back to 1995. You guys have been fighting for marijuana legalization uh, since day one. Like uh, 1996, I want to say, is when Prop 215 was 215 out of California. Yeah. Yep. All right. Yep. Yeah. That's when it passed. So were you guys uh, active in that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Prior to that, before that, we were in my husband and I were involved with normal, the you know uh, national normal on the board of directors for normal. So. Yeah, we were helping whatever movement we could help with uh, Dennis Perone and others in California. Oh, Dennis Perone. He passed away a few years back. Otherwise, we try to get him on the show. Yeah, yeah no, Marilyn, you are a one badass woman. I uh, found videos of you speaking in 1990 for normal. Uh, uh, one of what you're talking about uh, uh, for Virginia, uh, Vigilance for Health was one that you did. And then the drug education, because you were also a... Um, uh, 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 what uh, addiction counselor? Uh, addictions nurse, yeah, nurse. And then when you uh, were addiction uh, nurse, and then you became a, a cannabis, did you find like a, a relation as far as like people getting off? Uh, you know, addiction. Like, what was your definition of addiction at the time? Good, good point. Yeah, I started out in my nursing career as as a general medical surgical nurse in the mil in the navy first. And then uh, regular nursing and would find that there were a lot of people with alcohol problems that we weren't addressing. So I got into addictions. My definition of addictions is people continuing to use a drug despite problems it causes in their life, as opposed to if you use this drug, you're an addict, uh, which is what we kind of the war on drugs has to. Correct. Has to be, you know, good drugs and bad drugs. And if you use the bad drug, you're an addict. Um, so, yeah. And then after years of working as an addictions consult nurse at the University of Virginia, I ran a, um, I was executive director of a methadone clinic. And, um, you know, that was one thing that I'm very proud of with our clinic, we would not test for cannabis. Ooh. It's federal law, you have to test your uh, patients when they come in on a random basis, 
to just make sure they're taking the methadone that you're giving them and that they're not using other drugs, most places will test the usual t drugs and they'll include cannabis. And uh, luckily the owner of the clinic was sided with me and we said, we don't want to do that. We don't want to test for cannabis. We don't care. Nice. <laughs> In fact, um, on the side, I'd, I'd be doing some counseling for patients to use cannabis to get off of their methadone. Uh, Have you seen look, that be effective? Yeah. Cannabis is a, a we call it a gate, a, a, an exit drug as opposed to a gateway drug. Um, and it makes sense. It puts the body back in balance and, and people can get rid of their bad drug habits that yeah. way, whether alcohol, cocaine, tobacco, opiates, a very uh, good uh, therapy for opiates and all these patients getting into trouble with their chronic pain medication. Oh, yeah. The opioid scourge has been everywhere. And then it's it's worse in states that don't have uh, medical cannabis, especially medical cannabis, where pain is a treatment option. And so you'll see uh, the stat, the statistics are pretty cool. Like when a state legalizes cannabis, uh, there's a reduction in opioid overdose. Yep. It, the, yeah. The study that um, the one that's uh, tagged all the time, they found a 25 percent decrease in opioid overdoses. But in the states like Colorado and California that had the laws in effect longer, it was as much as a 30 33 percent decrease in opioid overdoses. It, it certainly makes sense. No, no other study have, have we had statistics like that. Oh, wow. When you see numbers like that, do you kind of like it's going to be frustrating as a nurse kind of like I told you so. I told you this shit was going to be helpful. It is. It's very frustrating. I, you know, gosh, it was like 2016, 2016, the drug czar came to um, Baltimore. We were doing our conference uh, in Baltimore at the time. And the day before the drug czar was there to talk about the opioid e epidemic and how we had to do whatever we could think outside the box. We really need to, to, to fight this. Mm -hmm. And they opened it up to, to Q and a, and so I, I went up to the mic and said, you know, hey, I appreciate everything you're saying. You know, yeah, we've got methadone and we've we've got um, Suboxone to fight it, uh, you know, and other options. Uh, I think it's time we consider cannabis. And right away he said, we don't want people smoking their medicine. And they turned off my mic so I couldn't say anything yep. else. <laughs> Probably because cannabis, so this is a page that I was just working on. I mean, it's still a schedule one substance. And so like I just shot this video about like why it's so difficult to do research on cannabis. And it is when it's schedule one, it's one high potential for abuse, which contradicts literally everything we're talking about right now. Two, no currently accepted medical use in the United States. Again, literally contradicts it. You're using it almost like a methadone, but instead of trying to relieve opioids, you're trying to get off of other more dangerous addictive substances that can really screw up your health. And then third, lack of accepted safety for use, even under medical supervision. I mean, what the heck is that? That is our federal facts, law of the land for the past 50 years when it comes to marijuana. Wow. You'd think they'd be embarrassed. I mean, because everybody knows the public gets it. It doesn't fit any of those criteria. Um, and when you think about those criteria, benzodiazepines like Valium and Ativan and Xanax, they're in schedule four. Oh, my God. Whoa. Like really low addiction potential. And those are terrible. How I mean, many people die of Xanax overdoses in a, in a given year? Wasn't that like Heath Ledger's drug that he would do and then he was just gone, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. And the benzos have a fair safety, but... You cannot mix them with something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
it's it's a and people who are taking those psychedelic or not psychedelic uh psychotropic drugs you're also chasing with alcohol you know it's it's not uh uh they're they're doing it on purpose <laughs> you yeah. know trying to get that that high or whatever they're trying to achieve mm-hmm. whereas and that's why i hate when people refer to cannabis uh consumption as you know did you get high or did you enjoy the high recreational yeah there's got to be a different term for that you know well you know there's a there's a funny thing a friend of ours uh, and another colleague greg gerdeman phd bio in biology and if we all remember the runner's high, right? And that you say that that's when endorphins are kicking into the brain, yeah. uh, morphine-like chemicals. Uh, it actually isn't. It's endocannab. Our cannabinoids are are kicking in and giving us the high. And when you talk about the runner's high, it means feeling good, feeling joy, feeling in balance. You know, I could run forever. I'm just, I'm, I'm in the zone. Yeah. Um, and that's what cannabis, you know, when our endocannabinoid system is in balance, that's the whole idea. We're in balance. We should feel good. Uh, and somehow the high, though, is a negative term. And I think the other uh, note on that is they keep calling it a drug and cannabis is a plant. It's not a drug. That's we right. Can make it from it, but it's a plant. That's right. It's, it's not heroin. Like, sure, you took poppies and Ooh. then you chemically treated it. And then you made heroin. Now, I would argue this perhaps is a drug. This is my vape cartridge. Now, this vape cartridge, of course, you took the plant and then you extracted the cannabinoids and terpenoids from that plant. You uh, then refined it and you uh, mixed it with some more terpenes to make it a little bit less viscous. So it would you know, sp- uh, go over the uh, electric filament that's heating it so that it can be vaporized. That's more of a drug. But you're absolutely right. It is a plant. And not just when they call cannabis a drug, but say coffee's a drug. Uh, yeah, I guess because oh, I like think, the, co- I the, the beans, but the uh, the actual drink. I mean, because you take the beans, you heat water, you you pass the beans through the water, you're extracting caffeine and then some other. Yeah, I was gonna say, you call coffee the drug. You'd call caffeine the drug in coffee. Uh, yeah. Like, and, and, I, and I'd even say different. We have herbal remedies, and just the fact that you're smoking a an extract of cannabis wouldn't, again, I'd call it an herbal remedy, whereas something like um, Epidiolex, which they've extracted and just done the, the made it into a pill, you know, look at that right. as a, the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. And they, they completely refined it and just to be CBD. And so they made that there. But this is this is something that I just touched on in that uh uh, video that I did. So, you know, to, don't forget to like and subscribe. You'll get notice of our, that video that I did about research on cannabis and the, and the problems that it faces. But uh, Denver has this new type of uh, license that I think is going to be popular in 2020s. It's a, a research and development license because there's just there's no research at the federal level because you have to jump over all these hoops. So if there's going to be any cannabis research, it's probably going to come from states like Colorado, Illinois. Uh, you're in California, Mary Lynn? No, I'm in Florida right now. Florida? Florida's got a medical program. They'll probably have research. Washington State will probably have research. Well, and, and that's, again, that's that whole problem with Schedule 1. And cannabis is even more unique. It's easier to do research on mescaline, LSD, peyote, uh, you name it. You can do research on that easier than with cannabis because for cannabis, you have to make one more step and get permission from NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. They grow it in Mississippi. They'll only allow the research studies to be the Mississippi grown pot, which is poor quality, not what people are using. 
Um, so yeah, it's great if the other states, and, and I know states are trying to do their best despite the federal law to make it more, you know, just to make it easier to study this plant. And, and as you all know, there's so many varieties of cannabis. The research, we need to do human studies with, with what they're using, not, not with just this one, um, you know, variety of cannabis, which is not necessarily going to be good for a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things. We want a high CBD maybe for, for anxiety, but we want more THC when we're talking about pain. So with, with your group patients at a time, do you have uh, uh, guidelines to help people? Like, can they sign up to your website? Cause I'm, you guys, you've been doing this for a long time now and you have what I would consider uh, your own personal research, your own references of uh, like what helps a certain disease or what, because it's nothing that's going to be offered in a medical school. It's all going to be uh, local research on your part. Uh, can someone go to your website for information on how to treat cannabis for themselves? They can find some research findings. Now, our mission is to educate healthcare professionals and the public about the endocannabinoid system and the therapeutic use of cannabis. So one of the things we did, it took us literally, we, as you said earlier, we were founded in 1995. We could not get anyone. I was at the University of Virginia at the time, and, and they wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. We couldn't get anyone to accredit a conference for us. It took us five years, and finally in 2000, we had our first conference. It was at the University of Iowa, <laughs> in wow. Iowa City, Iowa. And the reason was because Melanie Dreyer, a real pioneer uh, in this, she's a, a nurse, PhD nurse. She did work in Jamaica looking at pregnant women smoking ganja. And, uh, and so she's the dean at the College of Nursing at the University of Iowa and went to the College of Medicine and said, hey, you know, if we can't you know, study and examine cannabis at a university, where can you? That's what we're supposed to be about. So they uh, were the first to accredit us and that opened the door to, to getting conferences since then. And, and nowadays people, it's still a little difficult to get accreditation. A lot of universities, you know, they kind of- They know take the federal money. Credit. It's all those student loans. They're federally subsidized student loans. And, you know, because of that, there's the strings. Yep. Attached to that money. And they want that free money. I want that free money, too. You know, I want I would love to go get some of that payment protection plan money. But I am what they call a tier two MRB in the banking world. I uh, I'm not touching the plant, but I'm advising people how to touch the plant. And because of that, um, you can get flagged. And I'm not sure that uh, that federal program will be open to uh, law firms like mine or my consulting company. It's yeah, we- chicanery. Yeah, we thought we'd get by all these years because of, you know, the freedom of speech. We're just educating. And, uh, You're not allowed to. <laughs> but the, yeah, the other thing with our conferences um, that I'd add is what we try to do is make them very um, interdisciplinary. So we'd have the scientists, the clinicians, patients, family members, maybe even policy people. So that when you came, you got the full picture. And the cannabis researchers absolutely loved it. You know, our, our goal, I kind of said, we want to make you a rock star. You know, people need to know about Raphael Mishulam and yeah. uh, Vincenzo DiMarzo and, and a lot of these people have been doing some really great research, especially outside the United States, um, and bring those findings forward. Because again, as you said, those criteria for schedule one, cannabis doesn't fit in any of it. Any and of it yeah. It's a crime. That it's it's, in it's huge, but that's also why, uh, and I can never pronounce uh, Dr. Mitchellum's name, but that's why that stuff was done in Israel. 
because you're not allowed to do it here. And then so your your conferences and to a certain extent are federal conspiracies uh, under the law. And so uh, one of the, our Facebook fans, uh, Kelvin, asked something. I'm sorry, it's so large, but, uh, you know, federal raids from the 90s and the 2000s and collectives because Patients Out of Time is having its 25th anniversary. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your experience with raids that you may have uh, had to go through uh, prior to 2013 when the Cole memo came out. You're saying with raids? Yeah. Well, again, we're just educational, but I tell you, when we first started in 1995, go, you go back in time and uh, it's, I even forget when different things come about because I remember working with normal, we were so excited when, uh, when you could fax something. <laughs> so I'm thinking about phones and all this, but um, we, we've not had raids, but we, we literally had our phones um, tapped <laughs> for quite a while. We, we got, uh, you know, the phone company to come out and saying, there's this clicking that goes on in our phone and we can't figure out what it is. And they came and they went, but you know, one of the times they came back and this guy said, I, you know, we can't say anymore, but somebody's listening <laughs> at a high level. Um, and we've had our, we back in the day of a whole bunch of modems and trying to hook up to the internet. Um, they were tapping normals phones. Huh? They were no, this, well, this is our home phone where we were doing work out of. You, they they our, tapped your home phone. Yeah. Like uh, I wrote a book 10 years ago. That's how I met Miggy. Um, they delisted my book. Like from Amazon, it's like you can't buy it anymore. And I'm just like, okay, so there's we talk about the shadow ban when it comes to social media. And we have a fairly popular Facebook page, you know, facebook.com backslash free THC. And it's got like 300,000 likes, but it's just been stagnant for about seven years because of algorithms that are designed to suppress uh, cannabis information. And um, yeah, people were surveilling you for federal conspiracy. There was money in the budget for that. There still kind of is, depending on if, you know, if the state's uh, an adult use state or if the state's a medical state, because there's a provision in the budget that is defunded Department of Justice, provided that's who was spying on you. Uh, I'm not sure where the FBI is, if that's in Department well, of Justice you know, the, other thing, the other thing that happened was we fooled the government with our first conference in Iowa, but we tried to have the next one in Oregon, and we were going to have it in Portland with a... Um, Gosh, I can't remember the hospital, but it was a hospital in Portland, a big uh, HMO, and everything was going fine. And then all of a sudden, we got a call and said, "Nope, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't do this." And one of the physicians from the university actually quit. He was so upset. But they had gotten a call from the federal government saying, "We don't want you to do this." And so then we, so this was our second conference in 20, 2002. We were doing it every two years initially. So we said, maybe we should just go up to Canada. So we started making plans to go up to Canada. Um, and it ended up, we ended up coming back down to, to Oregon because the Oregon public health department, uh, okayed us to do it because they, they had the law and they wanted their, their people educated. But what did happen in, in, uh, Canada then was the drug warrior type people came up partnership yeah. for drug free, uh, uh, yeah, you know, we uh, still have them. They're called Sam smart approaches to marijuana. It's just a whole well, bunch that's of the, BS. That's one right sam the newer one but back in the day those they came and they were they came to canada they were scheduling something 10 days before we were going to have our conference up there and it was the marijuana people are coming and they tried to do the same thing in oregon the marijuana people are coming yeah <laughs> but oregon luckily the the people that were there hearing it were 
hey, they wanted the information, so well, it how, didn't work. How crazy is it that you're a threat just for giving out information and educating people? I mean, this is ridiculous. It's a lie. Yeah. Like, you're attacking the lie. And then if you're attacking a lie, it just shows that, like, this law is unconstitutional and freaking wrong. And it's hurting people. And they're like, no, 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 no. Keep the lie going. I mean, the Internet's the worst thing that ever happened to cannabis prohibition because it's really hard to keep the lie under wraps now. Well, that's, you know, in 19, gosh, see if I can remember my years. Was it 1981? The Institute of Medicine did a study, Marijuana and Health. And they found that, um, and it was more on just a marijuana recreational use, but the last chapter was on medical use. And they said, gee, it, it looks like it might be helpful in for glaucoma and cancer chemotherapy, and it works differently than other meds. Now, if that were anything else, pharmaceutical companies would be jumping on it. Oh, it works differently. Maybe we've got a good cure. Well, they buried that study. Most people don't ever know about it. So then in 1999, the Institute of Medicine, after California passed Prop 215, they said, well, we're going to have the federal government, uh, the Institute of uh, Medicine look at this. So they did uh, marijuana, cannabis and science or something, evidence-based science about it. And, uh, and they, their conclusion was it does have medical value. It is not a gateway drug. Um, it is safe for medical use. And, and it was because of the Internet, because of the last one, they released the um, – but the summary of those events on the internet uh, before publishing the whole book, because we, we warned him, we said, you know, the government's going to shut it down. Um, so at least it got out better. And then just most recently in 2017, the Institute of Medicine has been absorbed into the National Academies of Sciences. Mm. And in 2017, they put out their new volume, which was the research from 1999 to uh, from to uh, 2017, and, and basically they said it's conclusive evidence for its use for nausea and vomiting, substantial evidence for chronic pain. Um, substantial. And, and, you know, it's, and it's, it's, there's yeah. NSAIDs. That I can go buy enough Tylenol to give myself liver failure. Exactly. Batting an eye, you know, uh, and that I can't, and then it's cheap too. It's like, I, yeah. I can't wait until cannabis, because it's not really competing with alcohol when it's substantially cheaper to get drunk than it is to get high, you know, uh, until you can get that type of price parity down. So for, you know, a couple of bucks, you can get a, a great buzz. I mean, everybody will turn into Oregon, but you know, in Illinois, if I want to buy a medical eighth, the cheapest medical eighth I can buy is 50 bucks. Uh, cookie strain just hit Illinois. So the cookies fam is now in Illinois. They must've had a licensing agreement or something. Who knows? But uh, an eighth of cookies is uh, 65, a medical eighth. That's not adult use prices. Wow. Yeah. Right. And that's why we still, you know, they want to get rid of the black market, if you want to call it that. But it's like as people can't afford the medicine in these dispensaries. And, of course, as you know, as the different laws are being passed, it's really sad to see that it, it, they make it so difficult for a little grower to grow cannabis for someone. You know, you've got to have big bucks and then it's a big grow and it's it's like, Oh gosh, let's not let's not get rid yeah. of the little farmer. The, the <laughs> smallest grow that we have in Illinois, I tell the people to budget four to five million dollars. The smallest grow, like the craft growers. I'm like, okay, you've, you have to understand we're gonna be making a state-of-the-art indoor farm here, and and it has to have like the security system of a casino because of the way the regulations are. And and so you you have to build all these systems inside when you could be growing this stuff outdoors. You know. <laughs> You know, and that and that's the other thing that's so sad. Cannabis is a one absolutely wonderful plant for the environment. 
but we make people grow it indoors. So now you got to use fossil fuels to grow the plant that should be outside giving us, you know, oxygen and, and cleaning our air and our soil. Um, but instead we, we have it in there and we got to get the artificial lights and the temperature control and the, and the humidity and the HVAC. And then you have to have the lights all on schedule. You got the fertigation system, all things silly. And then of course you need to have the DEA approved vault in there. So like after you've made this plant, you then have to store it in a vault so that nobody robs you. You know, uh, Mary Lynn, uh, uh, your organization has uh, some pretty interesting people on the board of directors. Uh, uh, Alice O'Leary, her husband, uh, was he the uh, catalyst for the Compassion uh, Program? Uh, um, yeah, well, Al, um, and Alice now is on our advisory board. She's she's off the oh. board because she served on the American Cannabis Nurses Association. But, um, yeah, Alice's husband, Bob Randall, was the first patient to get it through the government. And you're now that on the screen, you're seeing L.V. Masika. And Rosenfeld are the only two left in that program, mm. and that yep. they actually were this. They they really had a had a um, integral role in us starting this it, in 1990. When my husband Al Byrne and I were um, on board of directors of Normal, we were putting together the conferences. So in 1990, we actually had the first accredited conference on cannabis in Miami. It was Melanie Dreyer again who helped get the accreditation. Um, but that was when we um, we had that conference, uh, and then in 1990 at the normal conference, we got the there were only five patients in that program at the time, and we got the five together, and uh, for various reasons, we got C-SPAN picked it up. They right. came and they taped it, and that was aired across the United States. And all of a sudden, people were saying, "What? They're getting marijuana from the federal government?" Um, and within for normal within like, like the next week they got over 40,000 phone calls. It was just inundated with other people saying, how can I do this? Yep. How can and I you do can this? see like Irv's got his tin right here is tin and you can see all the joints. So they yep. mail that to him every month. The federal government mails uh, Irv and Elvi. What is it? A hundred joints a month. And in, in one of those big tins, three grams, like a, they're each, I think there was like a, each a gram joint, uh, something like that. Yeah, good story there. Yeah, each tin carries about 300 cigarettes, and they're about a gram a piece. Yeah, so, you know, Bob was the first patient, and Irv Rosenfeld second. Elvie came along, um, George McMahon, uh, Barbara Douglas, uh, and, yeah, Corinne Millette. I almost forgot. She was the Barbara, – Barbara Douglas actually was, like, number six or seven. But that aired in 1990. By 1992, the government shut that program down. H.W. Bush, winners don't use drugs. And it was mostly HIV patients. They were just flooding. They were so desperate. They wanted help. And, and then uh, did you use that? So, okay, they, they wanted help. HIV was ravaging uh, the population, especially out in the San Francisco area. And so they shut down this uh, IND, this innovative novel drug program from the federal government that was allowing these federal medical marijuana patients. How much of an impact did that have on Prop 215 and really motivating the state of California to legalize medical marijuana? Well, you know, I, there were a lot of things that did, but yeah, that because that was one access patients had and the federal government said no. And meanwhile, Normal was working on its petition. They started a petition to the DEA to, to reschedule cannabis into schedule, just down to schedule four back in 1970 when they started that. It finally got the DEA's own judge ruled in 1988. <laughs> they stalled that long. It took that long until they had it. And the DEA's judge, Francis Young, said, yep, 
It doesn't belong in Schedule One. Let's move yeah. it. But, but they had a but look, it's yeah, the ban. That ban applies to that uh, opinion as well. I've read that opinion. You got to go looking for that opinion. You got to go looking for the congressional record from 1937 when they actually banned this stuff. They they banned it. They made science illegal, and then they just started deleting anything that was a threat. Um, it's it's really really scary and and uh, terrible. Like in the sense that you know America is supposed to be like you know. What was what's Superman? You know, truth, freedom, the American way, all that stuff. But uh, and then you see these types of, of disgusting laws that are that are on the books for decades, hurting people. And it's uh, it's this this quip from uh, from one of the guys in the Nixon administration, John Ehrlichman, uh, to in his Harper's Magazine uh, 1994 article. So the Nixon campaign in 68 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand? You know, that's what this is what he's saying to Harper's Magazine. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, heavily, we could disrupt the communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. That was the year before your uh, organization was formed in 1995. They've been just public about how racist it was for the past 26 years and nothing effing changes. I know you're right. And that's what's so frustrating. It's like that there was this little slim avenue of, of patients getting into the IND program. And, and believe me, that was hard. It was very intimidating for doctors to agree to be a doctor, to write, to try to apply for it. Most of the patients, their doctors, wanted to remain anonymous. They didn't want to be known. Oh, you know, I'm your marijuana doctor. Um, you know, so the good news, you know, thank goodness for the internet, et cetera. It's too big now. I mean, overwhelmingly easily 70% of the you know pop population gets it, that it's, it's a medicine. Um, you know, in some places it's, you know, higher than that. Uh, you'd think they'd be embarrassed or something to keep saying that the health and human services, you know, they, they back the DEA saying, yeah, we need more science. And it's like, but you won't let us do the science. And there is science outside the United States. We need States. more research. Why aren't you allowing us to do the research? We need more of it. We uh, we need more. Re How many times do you hear that from an anti-cannabis uh, politician? It's always we need more research. And then if you explain to them, really? Because for the past 50 years, you've been making it basically impossible to do the research. So all the research is coming from Canada and Israel and any state that's or any country that's not America. Yeah, there's another curious story, but um, in in England, uh, GW Pharmaceuticals developed Sativex, and and that's a full extract, a one-to-one -one THC to CBD cannabis extract. Um, and Canada actually was the first country to allow it before Great Britain. Um, back in like I think it was like 2003, it was legal in Canada. Now there's like 27 states, uh, 27 countries, excuse me, that allow allow for that. When we had our conference in 2004 in Charlottesville, Virginia, finally the University of Virginia, after two successful conferences, they agreed to accredit us. We had our, our conference there and uh, Jeffrey Guy was there speaking about the research they were working on. He and his lawyer and, and their team, his lawyer from uh, California, Alice Mead, went up to DC to discuss about wanting to do Sativex research in the United States. Um, and they literally got told uh, as long as you cut all ties with patients out of time. And, and, and the reason was because 
we supported their work and we'd love to see Sativex available, but they knew that we supported the whole plant and that people should have access to the whole plant. And the government was hoping that if they allowed Sativex to come in, they could say, see, we're allowing a medical, you know, a pharmaceutical grade product. We just can't have people having this dangerous plant, but they can have this safe controlled pharmaceutical product. Because years back when Marinol was legal, they tried to say, there, you've got your marijuana pill. And we'd say, it's not marijuana. It's THC in sesame oil. It's not the same. It's not as good. We want the whole plant. So it, it's been an interesting ride. <laughs> Marilyn, do you think the, uh, the I, I think it has, the, the CBD craze, do you think it has helped propagate the conversation and or has it overridden the whole uh, entourage effect conversation? I get, the, well, I think the good part about it is, you know, I mean, after Charlotte Figgy, uh, um, Sanjay Gupta had his documentary weed. The first one he did was with uh, Charlotte Figgy and seeing how the CBD helped with Dravet syndrome, the seizure disorder that she had literally, I mean, within the next two years, states just passed laws like that for CBD. So the good news is it all of a sudden woke people up to say, oh, that's a cannabinoid in cannabis and it's okay. But yeah, then it went to the weird swing that CBD is the real medicine in cannabis and that's what you need. And it's like, no, 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 you want all of it. You want the entourage effect with all of those different cannabinoids. Um, different people are going to have different varieties that are going to work with them for their condition. Uh, but you you want that. THC helps. They work together so well together. And CBD, all it does is it will dampen down the high, the euphoria from cannabis, although that's a good side effect. <laughs> um, you know, it'll dampen it down so people might not get dysphoric. And, and for those who are afraid to try cannabis because they're going to get high and out of control, you know, we often will encourage them. We'll try one, a one-to-one CBD-THC combination. You're not going to get, you know, out of control in your, you know, at all. You're not going to get overly paranoid, uh, but start with something that's more balanced. And if you need more THC, you can add it. But yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's good and bad, but yeah, the more we talk about it, the more they can see it's it's helpful. Oh, absolutely. My dad uh, keeps harping at me for getting him an article that he can give to his uh, old lawyer. It's, it's, it's not called the Old Lawyers ISBA Section Council, ISBA Illinois State Bar Association. Uh, and so I'm a second generation lawyer, but he's like, we just need something for the, the old guys magazine, you know, top four things. And so like, I, I I'm going to do that, you know, just one maybe today, just bang that out for him, 500 words real quick. But I wanted it to be like, you know, first, it's it's still your grandfather's weed. You know, like there was Santa Rosa Gold in Pan, from the Panama in 1970s. We had uh, Bobby Tuna on our show a few weeks, you know, what? months ago now. And he, and he, he told oh, us his stories about, you know, how he used to run uh, the great cannabis from Colombia in the 70s. But then it's not your grandfather's weed because the CBD craze really didn't like arise until about 2006, seven. And so now you can because the availability of higher quality is clearly there because now it's more legal. So you're allowed to grow it so it can have that higher potency like a Santa Rosa gold or a Panama red or um, I don't know what tie stick or yeah. whatever your your strain from the classic times is. But because of the CBD then you can really say, yeah, it's not granddad's weed. They didn't have these high CBD strains back then. Well, you know, you know what's, what's funny is where we are down in Florida, we're in the panhandle and we're in an area called the Forgotten Coast. And that's where Bobby Platshorn and a lot of those people were doing their, their smuggling back then because you could go back in the rivers and get lost real quick. Good. Uh, 
in terms of dealing with it. But, you know, yeah, well, and cannab- it was a more balanced plant, though. I don't know how much CBD was in there, but there was yeah. CBD back in the day. It was more balanced. But the prohibition, you know, it's just like alcohol and moonshine. It's uh, with the alcohol prohibition. Now they made stronger and stronger pot. So then eventually uh, Project CBD came about. And their whole goal was to say to the growers, especially in California, to say, hey, let's put CBD back into the plant. Let's get a more balanced plant. Um, you know, I, I usually refer to high THC uh, pot as stoner pot. I mean, it. you know, people want to get a high. They want to get stoned. They want that. Most patients for their medical uses, they want something more balanced. Uh, yeah. But yeah, there's, there's, and there's over a hundred cannabinoids in the plant. I mean, just think of the potential if we could do find out what these other cannabinoids, lesser known ones have to offer. CBG is going to be coming out here real big this year because of the, the USDA regulations from the farm bill that's going to be effective next year. And depending on what state you're growing, your hemp may already be effective for this crop year. Uh, the total THC limitation that they put on it, which is terrible regulations, really uh, upset the vast majority of the CBD hemp strains that the farmers planted last year. So you're going to see a lot more CBG strains that can do uh, the 0.3% total THC compliance. And then some of my farmers also have some CBD hemp strains that uh, that claim that they are going to be able to hit that 0.3% total THC uh, limitation, you know, which is fascinating. But the uh, there will be a lot more of the CBG flower that's going to be grown this year and next year. Yeah. And, you know, and there's research a lot for the patients to, to get the raw plant and, and get the THCA or the CBDA. And THCA, the in acid form, is not... Is not going to give you the high, right, Marilyn? Do you know when uh, the endocannabinoid system was found? Like when it was, more or less, yeah. Because I I teach that piece a lot. Um, yeah, it was back in uh, 1988 in Alin Howlett in the U.S. Uh, first found out the receptors in the brain, the CB1 receptors. So the first cannabinoid receptors that we found primarily in the brain, <clears throat> but it took four years to find that we make a cannabinoid, anandamide. So when they first found the receptors, you know, a lot of stoners are going, see, we're wired for pot. And the researcher said, no, 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 that's, you know, we, we just need more research. So it was in Raphael Mashulam's lab that they discovered anandamide, which means bliss in Sanskrit. Um, but that was the first cannabino- endocannabinoid they found. And then by, ni- that was, yeah, 1992, so four years later. By 1995, they knew about, the CB2 receptors, primarily in the immune system. Then they found 2AG, another endocannabinoid. And now we realize that it is throughout our body. Literally, we got um, receptors throughout our body, except in the brain stem, which kind of explains why you won't overdose. It will not shut down our breathing or our heart rate. Um, literally almost impo- impossible to overdose on cannabis. Um, we had a, a, a toxicologist in North Carolina uh, a chief toxicologist of North Carolina said, I think the only way you could really um, die from cannabis was if a bale of it fell from the sky and hit you on the head. Yeah. <laughs> and he was a serious old guy, but, which was great because this is way back in the 80s when he was saying that. Nice. Uh, otherwise, it's like 10,000 to 40,000 times a normal dose, maybe yeah. lethal or 1,500 pounds consumed in 15 minutes, which, of course, nobody can do. I don't care how good, how big your dab is. You just can't do it, you know, but uh, yeah, I remember that. And then Willie Nelson will use that as a joke sometimes about, you know, marijuana can kill you. 
the bail of it falls on you, you know. Maryland, do you know if the the endocannabinoid system is taught in present medical schools? In a few, um, I know University of Maryland in the uh, they've got a pharmacology uh, course through the School of Pharmacology. Um, Vermont, Washington. Yeah, Vermont, Washington State. There, it's coming, but it's yeah. it's barely there. Some of it might have a course. Some of them actually have real courses, but it's limited. Out of the many. Um, medical schools we have, for the most part, it's not taught. Of the many nursing schools, it's not taught. And most, so most practicing clinicians, you know, you kind of go, hallelujah, if they've heard of the endocannabinoid system. And that's my advice to a lot of patients. They say, how do you bring this up to your physician? You know, if, if will you recommend cannabis for me? And uh, rather than even asking about cannabis, I suggest that they first ask the physician, have you heard about the endocannabinoid system? Nice. And if you have, great. You know, ask them if they can tell you about it. Like, have they heard of it or do they really know about it? Do they know what it is? And if they don't, ask them if they'd like to learn. You can get them some information. And if they don't, you need to find a new physician. Because if your physician doesn't even want to know about the most important system in the human body, because it governs everything else. If they don't want to know about that, you got to find somebody else. And then if they understand the endocannabinoid system, it's kind of a, you know, you don't even want the physician if they can't make the connection there that, oh, cannabis can help when you're deficient, when your own system is deficient. And Ethan Russo, that was back in 2004, I believe, he wrote the first article about the clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. And he could show the research for irritable bowel syndrome, migraine headaches, and fibromyalgia are the result of a deficient endocannabinoid system. Hmm. And then in 2016, he added like added post-traumatic stress, which you can imagine because someone's bombarded so much of this system that's supposed to keep us in balance that it just wears out or ALS, um, MS, multiple sclerosis, uh, autism. He he named a lot of other things that the science says it's someone having an endocannabinoid system. And if you think about it for decades, we've taken cannabis and hemp Hemp seed oil, hemp seed, it's legal now, but we've literally taken it out of our diet, our normal way of living. And I think humans are suffering from it. I like to say, uh, you know, how uh, if you don't have enough vitamin C, you get scurvy. You know, uh, if you don't get vitamin THC, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, you you don't get that from the outside. And then there's so many stressors we're dealing with. Um, You know, that, that system is working on a daily basis, which makes it better than any, to an extent, any other drug per se because this is always putting us in balance and if it can't work we supplement it with cannabis and uh prime the system have you seen the uh the, the spanish documentary the scientist that highlights the, yeah so that's where i learned that the endocannabinoid system is entwined with our nervous system and our bone structure which blows my mind it, it is intricate to everything yeah zach Klein did that film that that's one for everybody out there. You know, you just go to YouTube and look up the scientist by Zach Klein. Absolutely. By Zach documentary. Klein. Cool. It, but yeah, the, the bone thing, that's, that was Irv Rosenfeld's condition. He had some very peculiar bone tumors that would be stopped or at least substantially slowed by his uh, cannabis yeah. use. That, that was more for, for the pain. And because of those were tumors growing. Um, but, but in the bone system though, otherwise, when you think about people getting older, um, and osteo, um, besides the arthritis, but just osteoporosis and your bones just becoming so porous and you break easily. We have medicines for that. 
but not a lot of the pharma pharmaceutical medicines we have to fight that if you take them for like five years or so your bones become too brittle and then they break easy whereas cannabis puts the balance back in the bones for the new bone cells being made and the old ones being uh flushed out of the system it it balances our bones everything okay yeah, I want to get that Ethan Russo on the show. I've reached out to him before, and he got a soft commit, and then I just haven't been able to get him actually on. But I love his um, his science-based take on the classification of the cannabis cultivars. He thinks that we should have three classifications, type 1, type 2, type 3, and then it would be type 1, and that's like your THC-heavy uh, stuff. And then mm-hmm. type 2 is more your one-to-one balancey ratios type stuff, like your Harley Sue strains and whatnot. And then type three would be like your, your auto, your lifter, you know, your CBD heavy strains. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah we need some kind of system. People are just kind of. Line in the sand of like, here's 0.3%. Then magically it's hemp. You know, that's just silly. And it's not scientific at all. You know, Par for the course with the uh, cannabis laws at the federal level. Yeah. And the idea that somebody's going to grow a hemp crop and it does come to be, uh Oh, it's now 4% or something. It's like, Okay, you can't have that. We're going to destroy the whole crop. It's like what? Mm-hmm. It's stupid. It's yeah. um. Okay. It's not stupid. I keep saying that it's criminal. This whole prohibition is criminal. It because people literally are dying. Yep, that's something that uh, Alan Peacock just basically said. I can't understand how this is still illegal. It's a crime against human beings. And like you know, he's talking about where he got relief. He, about seventy-three percent THC RSO. There you go. You know, and I think uh, people, uh, first off, Marilyn, I thank you so much for doing what you're doing as yeah. far as the, the conferences go. I mean, so one, one quick question was the accreditation you keep mentioning. What does that mean when you do an accredited conference? Yeah, sorry about that. For um, we, we were involved with Normal for a lot for many years. So we'd put on conferences and educate people. Uh, that was too big of a step for a healthcare professional to come to. It's like, I don't know. When we say accredited, we're meaning that it's giving continuing educational credits for physicians, nurses, pharmacists, social workers, so that they know they've got this um, guarantee, say guarantee, but it means it's science-based. It means it's evidence-based that we're not just spouting, oh, I believe this or I think this. No, we've got evidence to tell you. And so our conferences, I mean, it's so easy, tons of evidence to show how safe it is. And I think that's the, the sad part about it for the public. You know, oh, we need more research. We do not need any more research regarding the safety of this plant. Right. Yeah. We Which, need or the medical benefits. Yeah. Actual medical uses and it's safe. And then not only that, it is not prone toward abuse. Uh, it, it, it actually is self titrating. When you've had enough, you usually put the joint down. Yeah, exactly. People have too much and they, they sometimes they don't like the way it feels. It puts them to sleep or they might get a little anxious. It's like they learn you titrate. Yeah. yeah. You take too much, you get a pizza and order Pink and listen to Pink Floyd. You know, uh, you don't do that when you drink too much or take too many pills. Yeah. But also, Mary Lynn, um, you know, your educational efforts, I think, are amazing because you're in states that are prohibition states, that are uh, reefer madness states, that are just places I don't want to drive through sometimes. But, you know, you keeping that conversation as an educated nurse and with the people that are your surrounding, uh, it's got to be, though. Uh, overwhelming for the I would I'll call them uh, 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 citizens or uh, um, God damn it what do you call people <laughs> who are not in war? Uh, I'm sorry. 
the public? The activists. Yeah, I mean, or are you on the sidelines, you know, people who are not activists or people who are, haven't been, you know, trying to, to learn about this plant. Novices or, yeah. Yeah, um, civilians. It's got Canada's civilians. There we go. Civilians. But it's got to be overwhelmed. People are overwhelmed when they hear about how much this plant helps people. That's the problem, I think, too. When I first started doing this, I was just more about, hey, let's stop putting people in jail for this bullshit because uh, alcohol is more dangerous, period. And then as you learn about it, I had a guy, um, and I'll never forget him, uh, on my, my, during the MySpace days, he'd sent me a video of him. He was in a wheelchair, and then he, 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 he smoked, and then he shows him walking. And it's like, I see this helping a person, but it's got to be overwhelming because all the gamut of things this, can't, this plant can fix. So people are kind of like, nah, this is bullshit. If the government cared about me, they would just legalize it. I mean, how much more do you think we we face as educating people, you know, not making it so overwhelming? Well, uh, good question. I mean, our our goal when we educate, it's like, okay, now that you guys know something, go out and educate more. Um, we do need the people to take over because, you know, it's more than um, the science. I mean, they use that as an excuse. Well, the other excuse they use is it's a um, in, we've got the international law. Uh, the single convention treaty. And so we, we have to go by that. But we know that, especially now with this administration, they don't necessarily pay attention to international yeah, law. Yeah, seriously, we're not even on the metric system. I mean, come on. It's like, this is America. Really? We're going to. And it was really never meant to stop medical use of those mm -hmm. drugs. So it's an excuse. Um, you know, how long will it take? It is just. It's a frustrating thing. But, you know, this is a this is a big year. You, you mentioned earlier, it's our 25th anniversary. It's the 50th anniversary of the Controlled Substances Act. So for 50 years, it's been in Schedule One. It was put there arbitrarily. They had the Nixon Commission had a um, commission look into it to see if it really belonged there. Uh, the Schaefer Commission, Schaefer which was published in 1972, and they said, no, it doesn't belong there. But of course, as you quoted before, he didn't care. He wanted to shut the hippies up and uh, <laughs> and make them demons. Um, mm -hmm. But so 50 years, that's been going on. And 25 years, we've been trying to tell people this is not true. The Internet is is a is a big deal to let people, you know, see the world, see our neighbors to the north, Canada, where it's legally. I can tell you an example there. Our conferences, when we have them, we still it's still hard to get a lot of healthcare professionals to come. They're afraid to be seen. You know, who's going to know I'm coming to a marijuana conference, um, even though we keep trying to tell them to call it by its proper name, cannabis. Um, but we will get, if we're lucky, I think, you know, maybe we've had as many as 60 nurses come. We get more patients and family members than we do healthcare professionals. And we'll get, you know, 30 to 50 physicians. I went up to Canada. I was doing some courses for Canada uh, for the Canadian nurses. Uh, and I'm get, I was going to, I've, I've gone to probably maybe 10 different cities in Canada and I'd be getting 300 or more nurses at a time. Now in the United States, we have 4.5 million nurses up there. They only have like 650,000. So, I mean, we should be getting, we need these nurses to get this information, but they're still, and they're, and they're intimidated. We, we've had nurses in Connecticut where a nurse had to sign papers saying, I will not talk to patients about cannabis. We've had the, um, uh, I'm thinking Kaiser, um, Kaiser, the Kaiser Healthcare, they won't allow their nurses, the, the cancer nurses, to talk to patients about cannabis. Wow. In many universities, 
universities, the, the administration tells the physicians, we don't want you writing recommendations. Right. So even though the law might be okay, there's still the hesitancy. And you said it earlier, Tom, it's because they're afraid of losing federal money. You know, if, if, we're, if we report this, maybe the feds, you know, they'll punish us somehow. Yeah. But like the employment stigma is real too. Like people just don't speak up, you know, for the plan because, oh shit, I got a day job and they just saw me on YouTube and now I got to go call the HR tomorrow. Exactly. We had a nurse, a wonderful nurse, uh, Ed Glick, um, went to our, spoke at our conference in, I think, t- 2006 in, uh, could have been that one, in uh, Santa Barbara. And he spoke on its use. He worked in a psychiatric unit and at the time, Oregon wasn't allowing it for that. I think the only psychiatric use was for aggression with Alzheimer's patients. But he was trying to say that it, it's more useful for these other patients. He spoke about that at our conference. He went back to work, and the first thing they wanted to do was drug test him. Oh, my God. And he ended up he ended up leaving the nursing, his, um, nursing career and went back to school and, and uh, started growing the plants, learned how to grow, grow things better. <laughs> Oh man, it's it's just something else, and it's just such a thick uh, prejudice, especially in the medical field toward it. And I think one of the uh, I don't really have a high opinion of anybody, especially humanity in general. And so uh, one of the things that I've noticed about doctors or nurses or people that usually have to go to school rigorously and be trained, they have this little goody two shoes aspect about it. So just because it was illegal. They didn't want anything to do with it, you know, because I'm a good kid and I'm following the rules. And then also when you go to school, you just get really, really good at doing what you're told. So if you've just been told to avoid this your whole life and you're getting A's on on everything, unlike me, who barely graduated um, or went to class, uh, because you're so good at being a good student, and not questioning authority and kissing up to authority and, and becoming like, you know, a teacher's assistant or is that like a yeah, TA? Uh, and like, then you're the one who's teaching the kids. Uh, that could be an aspect of it. It could be its own cultural aspect of it because of you're not supposed to question authority and it's illegal. So good people don't do it. You're, you're going to screw up your scholarship, Bob. What happens if you get caught with that? What will people think? You know, that type of stuff. It's it's ridiculous. And, and a lot of people are influenced by that. You know, some some are lucky and they get parents or whatever that teach them to question yeah. authority. Um, and, and in science, we're supposed to learn to question, you know, to look at the science. Are You know, what are you basing this on? And it, so you can always get in a really healthy argument and, and more easily now. I mean, in the old days, even mentioning saying marijuana out loud, people started looking at you funny. Um, and now they know to call it cannabis and, and the conversations are going on all the time. Um, and, and frankly, actually for nurses, we're way ahead of the physicians. Um, the council, the national council of state boards of nursing, um, I spoke to them. They're the ones that do the nursing exams and they're the ones that will, uh, discipline nurses if we do anything, um, inappropriate, uh, Mm -hmm. for our license. But uh, so I spoke to them about the fact that nurses are, have to be able to talk to patients about cannabis. It's legal for patients to use it, and they should be able to get advice from a healthcare professional. Then the other piece of uh, that talk was, and some nurses are going to be patients who can use cannabis, and it's a much safer medicine than most of the others that they would be prescribed. So you should, if they're, you know, if it's legal in that state, that should not hurt their 
license, their ability to work. But that being said, and so the, the Council on um, the State Boards of Nursing did put out a full journal, a whole supplemental journal to teach nurses very basics, but about the endocannabinoid system, about the use of cannabis, because they're recognizing that. Yet at the same time, hospitals will fire people if they test positive. Yeah. Well, uh, Lord, have you on that note? Thank you so much for joining us for Cannabis Legalization News. Seriously, it's an honor yeah. having you on to, on 420 Eve. Uh, but where can we go to follow and find Patients Out of Time? We're real easy patientsoutoftime.org or medicalcannabis.com. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to have, yeah, there we were hoping for our conference May 28th to 30th. But as you know, the uh, COVID 19 kicked that out of the we're probably going to be looking at people. Please stay tuned to our website because we're probably going to be doing a lot of this as a webinar um, and offer it. We, you know, we're just looking at the fact that it is our 25th anniversary and we don't want to go out quietly. Um, we're actually, we're actually going to try to get a, a, a statement and I'll, I'll be back visiting you guys and others. We want a coalition of groups, not just patients out of time, but all of these groups to come together and demand the cannabis, the prohibition ends. You know, we've had enough. And and again, just pointing to the fact that this is the 50th anniversary of the Controlled Substances Act, putting it in Schedule 1, the stupidest, you know, uh, play, it, it, there's nothing to validate that placement. Um, exactly. it's, it's time to, you know, America is looking stupid on so many fronts, but this one is, is, is ridiculous. We are behind everyone on this issue. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Marilyn. We really appreciate everything that you've done for the cannabis movement over the past 25 years. And actually before, because you were involved in normal, even before uh, patients out of time. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I literally, you know, if you remember the book 1984, if you've read it, I was back in grad school in 84. And that's when I did my thesis on marijuana disclosure to healthcare professionals, which is what got me involved with normal. But that's when I went from thinking about it as marijuana, a recreational drug, to waking up to the fact that, oh my goodness, this is cannabis, a healing herb, as, yeah. you know, that is so safe. So thanks for having me. Yep. Thanks for coming on. And make sure you guys like and subscribe to keep up with all cannabis legalization news. We'll see you tomorrow for 420's Q&A episode. Woo. Thanks.